Hello and welcome to Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. Today's guest is Simon Shields. Simon co-founded Monash Investors in 2012 following stints at UBS and Colonial First State. Monash Investors are a long-short Australian equity manager with an absolute return focus, which it adopts in its two funds, one of which is listed, one unlisted. Today, I won't focus on Simon's investment style as much. For that, I urge you to listen to the episode published back on October 9, 2020. I'll put that in the wire. Today, we explore the biggest issues facing investors, namely inflation, supply chain pressures, and rate hikes, and go through the stocks that are well-placed to weather the storm and those that aren't. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a LiveWire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever I post content. Not a LiveWire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Simon, thanks for joining us on Rules of Investing. Hi, David. Here we are, uh, June 1st, uh, 2022. And we're in a very different world to the one we were in pre-COVID. COVID obviously threw demand and supply completely out of whack. There was this expectation that things would normalize, uh, but that has not happened. I keep hearing the word transitory less and less these days and the word structural more and more. Uh, so w- what's going on? What's changed? Well, it's pretty extraordinary how things have played out. Um, when COVID hit, it was bad and things shut down, but we expected that things would reopen and off we go. Um, it wasn't quite that simple. There were supply chain disruptions, which um, kept on for a while with very well-publicised chip shortage. It affected cars, for example. Um, but also the ports got pretty clogged up as some of them didn't reopen, particularly ones in, in China. Um and also in Australia, to some extent as well, although special arrangements were made, we it was very well publicised how the ships were backed up in the United States, for example. But again, the expectation was, well, things will normalise at some point. But two years into it, and we're still seeing supply chain disruptions, and so um, that's been a big element in uh, inflation being persistent rather than transitory. It's quite extraordinary, actually. Um, that it's the case. It's caused uh, inventories to build up in some areas and lack of inventories in others. And it's that lack of supply for a product that actually causes inflation because if there aren't enough products to go around, then the price will get bid up. Um, When enough products are there, uh, the price comes down. In the past, we never had a problem with supply in this way. The economy of the world was very flexible. But uh, now we've got, uh, in a real way, an education as to why uh, inflation occurs. Hadn't been occurring for the previous 20 years or so. In fact, the world was getting more efficient, more flexible. Uh, It was easier to supply. We had more transparency. Prices came down. It's the opposite now. We've gone from just-in-time inventory to just-in-case inventory. And that's, that's one aspect. But it it hits it in other ways as well. So, for example, um, oil has been feeding into um, inflation, and that's got a lot to do with lack of supply as well. It's not just the fact that Russia um, isn't contributing as much as it, as it would have uh, to the world, uh, but for Ukraine. The supply of oil um, is a function of how much we can pull out of the ground, and we're always depleting our oil supplies. And Pressure in oil wells tends to drop over time, so you have to actually um, 
expand the capacity of existing wells and you have to go and find new wells. And the world has been doing less of this on average than what it used to for various reasons. Um, obviously, there's been a push by uh, governments for decarbonisation. There's been um, ESG requirements at a corporate level and by institutional investors, which has discouraged uh, companies from investing uh, as much as they might have in hydrocarbons. And there's been a push to pay that money out that would have otherwise been invested as dividends. And we've got boards that are more inclined to, to do that now. In fact, they would prefer to divest assets in the same way that BHP um, has recently divested its oil and gas to to Woodside and its its coal to Stanmore, um, or for example, um, Rio's divested its its um, uh, gas assets to to Santos. So, because there is actually uh, less uh, investment in capacity than what there would have been, we're actually a bit short globally. And that's been the other factor that's been pushing up the oil price, let alone the Ukraine. And oil feeds into everything. So um, it's- and, and, and it's not just, um, it's not just com- uh, the interest of companies to invest in capacity. It's also um, OPEC. It's also sh- uh, shale oil, um, uh, US strategic reserves, um, they can't come to the rescue either. Well, you've Is that touched right? on a number of things. Um, just it's, a, the, it's a perfect storm. Just on the US strategic reserves, they've been unleashing them already, and so we're seeing the oil price rise in the face of face of of the um, US strategic reserves being unleashed. So that's that's not it. We're seeing the oil price rise in the in the face of the fact that OPEC would actually quite like to increase its supply, but it can't. Um, like I said, all, all wells reduce their pressure over time; they deplete. Um, OPEC has been um, not investing as much themselves for the same reasons as everybody else, um, and they find themselves at, at a point where they can't imp- increase their supply all that much. And when it comes to shale oil in the United States, um, again, they haven't been investing as much, and what they have been doing is high grading in that they've been um, taking the most out of the best wells and they've been um, shutting down the worst wells. And so when the time comes and they want to start actually increasing their supply, the first place they go to is the worst wells, which aren't, aren't all that good at producing. Um, now, certainly there are some smaller shale uh, um, oil producers that are, that are putting money in and taking advantage of the high prices. But in fact, the large corporates are still reluctant to put too much money in for, for what they perceive perhaps is a short-term problem, but also because of ESG issues and decarbonisation requirements as they report to their shareholders. So the oil price is supportive for companies like Santos, for Woodside, less so for the Rios um, and the BHPs who have been divesting? Very much so. Um, you know, previously, uh, we saw oil price get hit $140 in 2007. It took five years to get there, and that rise in price over five years induced new supply. So, you know, history tells us it takes takes around five years to get those prices down with new supply, but you actually need to have things in train. Uh, we're not really seeing that at the moment. Um, so, you know, it could well take longer than five years to bring it back into balance uh, this time. And, uh, you know, we're starting from an oil price of $90 rather than an oil price of $20 as we were in 2002. So it's very easy to see oil getting back to $140. I mean, um, as we speak, it's, it's you know, over 110 You touched before on uh, inventories and how we've moved from just in time to just in case. Uh, we used to be just in case pre-tech boom. 
Is that right? Yeah, look, um, pre the tech boom, we had a much more cyclical economy. Um, when I think of cycles, I think of traffic jams in a way. So, you know, traffic's flowing smoothly, but there's a lot of it. And somebody has an accident and they pull off to the side of the road. And as, as people move up, they have to slow down to be cautious. They slow down a little bit more to have a look. And as traffic starts to, to bank up, and in fact, some people actually have to stop as they, as they put their foot on the brakes. As that, so there's, there's a banking up of traffic. And then as, as people go past the, um, the traffic jam, uh, get past the obstacle, then they can see it's a clear lane in front of them and they speed up. And so this, this slowing down and speeding up and slowing down and speeding up, that's, that's very much like an economic cycle. Well, you know, the same thing sort of applies with inventory cycles, um, or it did. It did before the tech boom. Um, it used to be the case that when we had less communication and less transparency of what um, demand would be, what our competitors were doing, uh, what our uh, suppliers were able to provide and plan in advance, uh, people used to build up their inventories a little bit more just in case they called upon them. Um, and so, and you actually used to have more people in the chain of logistics because you might have a manufacturer, you might have an exporter, you might have an importer, you might then have um, a distributor, and then you might have a wholesaler and a retailer. So obviously, if each person wants to have their own inventories, that's quite a lot of inventory um, in the system. Now, if you've got a situation of inflation, then um, you're better off uh, buying your um, inventory as soon as possible and drawing it down over time. Because if you if you just only draw it down whenever you need it, you'll be paying a higher price, a higher price, a higher price because there's inflation. So in, in, in any situation where prices are rising, um, merchants are, are more inclined to want to hold inventory. Right? Um, then what happens is if you start to get uh, excess supply coming on the market and the price being driven down, then they realize, gee, I would have been better off not holding this inventory. I'd rather buy it uh, when the prices are, are low and the longer I wait, the lower the prices are. That's sort of what happened post the tech boom as, as, as disinflation occurred. But for the people that are holding all this inventory, if we're going into a downturn and that inventory is not being pull down, well, they're not going to be buying more inventory up the chain. They've got heaps of inventory on hand. They'll, they'll draw down on their inventory. And um, it's only when they start to run out that they'll start to buy uh, some more. So, so are they building up those inventories now with, with prices so high? Well, yes. And in fact, people that had been building up their inventories in the past six months are probably patting themselves on the back to some extent because you know with higher um, transport prices- um, you know, and and just general wage cost inflation, they're seeing the cost of goods that they're buying increase. And if they've been able to buy their inventory six months ago at a lower price, um, that's great for them because they're going to be selling at higher prices mm. and they're going to get a margin expansion. Um, of course, they're going to have to start buying new inventory at a higher price later. Um, and, you know, so those margins will come back unless they're able to keep pushing their selling prices up ahead of that that growth in the in the inventory price. So that change in uh, supply chains and and inventories, how's that feeding into the market? Where are we seeing that effect most pronounced in the market? Well, um, I think that we're we're seeing it um, really in an ad hoc sort of a way at the moment. Um, from you know, in a couple of companies here and there, 
we haven't really seen it as a widespread issue um, around the market. Um, so, uh, but of course, the place where it's going to be seen first is going to be with with retailers, right? Okay. So, um, even as long as um, a year ago, we saw issues with Kogan's inventory. Um, they ordered a lot of inventory um, that was needed by people um, during COVID lockdowns. As people started to come out of COVID lockdowns, uh, Kogan found that they had way too much inventory. And that inventory that they did have um, was still getting clogged up in the distribution channel. In fact, they had so much inventory there, they couldn't really um, get it through the distribution channels efficiency, efficiently. And they're actually still working their way through that that inventory. Um, I dare say that their orders for um, product have uh, been much less than what they would have been now if they hadn't have bought all that inventory previously. Um, another retailer is City Chic. And um, about six six months ago or so, City, City Chic got criticised for having too much inventory on hand. And they said, well, we're actually being very wise because we know that it could well get a lot harder to get our hands on this inventory. And um, and and so it's played out. And so we'll probably find that as their result comes out, um, while their inventory levels are still high, it's actually standing them in, in good stead um, as they go into the Christmas period um, where they couldn't otherwise have got product at that price. So inventory holders, depending on when they built, built it up, could be winners or losers. It's not like we have to all just flock to services companies because of this situation. That's right. That's right. Having said that, there might be other reasons we want to stay away from from, uh, from retailers at the moment. Yep. Well, that leads on uh, to the next point, which is which is rates and the effect it has on uh, discretionary spending. Um, central banks are tightening. Um, now, it seems like it's very easy to stimulate the economy, not so easy to throttle down. Yeah. Well, look, we're really in quite an extraordinary situation where the economy is booming as we speak in that we've got really low levels of unemployment. We've also got um, pretty high levels of of consumption. Clearly, um, asset prices have been high. House prices have been very high. That that creates a positive wealth effect where people feel like they they want to spend. Um, and, but you know, notwithstanding how how strongly the economy has been booming, um, we have extremely low interest rates. Um, also supported by what has been quantitative easing, and that's all occurring at a time when inflation is, by historical standards, uh, pretty high, um, and certainly by recent standards. So we've never we've never had a situation where interest rates have been so low and inflation so high, and the central banks now want to focus on trying to get that inflation down, and they've only got one lever, really, uh, which is um, interest rates, and that is probably a pretty uh, blunt lever if the biggest problem is supply constraints, whether it's because of disruption for, for goods or whether it's because um, lack of oil and gas. So in the, in the inflation conversation, the supply of money isn't as much of a problem as uh, the lack of goods and services. Absolutely. No, if, if you think about what happened um, when they were trying to actually create inflation um, previously, um, they didn't just drop interest rates, they... Uh, began uh, quantitative easing. And 
almost like no matter what they did, they couldn't get inflation to go up. And the reason why they couldn't get inflation to go up was because um, there weren't, you know, this, demand was always being satiated by supply. Like if we wanted something, we could get our hands on it. And the planning was so good and the visibility was great. And, and you know, globalization of trade meant, you know, we could get hands on stuff. But, but now that's gone the other way. And um, it's not clear to me at all that, um, you know, reversing the monetary policy of itself is going to bring down inflation when it didn't cause the inflation. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so what does this mean for stocks? Does this mean leveraged long-duration stocks uh, are out, uh, consumer discretionary is out, or it's not that simple? Well, you've touched on a couple of completely separate issues there. Um, let's just – we'll come back to the whole long-duration and, and what interest rates mean to stock prices and so forth. But but just to talk about in particular um, what's going to do to consumers. So as consumers, we're faced with high petrol costs and we've basically got to pay them. If you want to drive to work or the kids to school, you're going to have to pay more for petrol. Likewise, you go to the supermarket, your food costs are going to be higher, not just because of the extra transport costs, but what's going on with the price of food itself um, is actually being driven up, whether it's the cost of fertilizer, whether it's the lack of uh, wheat supplies globally, um, and we're all dealing in a global pricing environment, um, you're going to pay more at the supermarket. You're going to be paying more um, for your rent or your um, mortgage. Um, and as we found out quite recently, we're all going to be paying more for electricity as well. So faced with all these rising uh, costs that we have very little choice but to pay for, there is less left over to spend on things. We want to spend on discretionary things. So, okay, what does that mean? Well, um, not all discretionary spending is equal at the moment. We, as a, as a country, have spent quite a lot on things for the home because of COVID. Because we had lockdowns, because we were stuck there, um, white goods, things for the kitchens like coffee makers, uh, things to help us work from home like computers and headsets and so forth. These things are all um, consumer durables and we've been overspending on them because of COVID. Um, now, um, really, they're going to be the first things that don't get spent on. So we've, we've had the sh sugar hit and because of that, we're now going to go the other way. That's right. That's right. And so the, the sharp end, the, the, the companies that are going to feel this uh, contraction of consumer spending the most are those that are in the area of discretionary spending um, where there had been an overspend previously. So if you can find a company that sells white goods and computers like a JB Hi-Fi does Harvey or Normans. a Harvey Norman does, mm. exactly, um, depending what else is going on in the business, um, you know, the revenues are going to fall and there will be, you know, some leverage to um, – to the lower sales in the earnings. Um, if the company has any balance sheet issues, uh, it might need a capital raise, for example, particularly as interest rates are, are going up. So the flip side of that coin is non-discretionary. So what sectors and stocks are looking good on that side? The flip side of non-discretionary. Okay. So this is this is the this is the killer, I suppose. Um, you know, the stocks that are going to go up as beneficiaries. Um, a, a pretty sort of 
boring staple type companies and they they might outperform but they're not going to make you rich right? <laughs> like you know so if you think about you know Woolies and Coles uh, if you think about healthcare providers um, like Sonic Healthcare perhaps um, you know staples anything that's in a staple that's going to do okay um, well cuz i mean by definition just because discretionary spending is going down, that doesn't necessarily mean non-discretionary is going up, does well, it? Well, yes, but the non-discretionary is going up. A lot of it doesn't benefit us in the stock market, right? Like here, yes and no, right? But, but and you ask in particularly what, what companies would benefit who are in non-discretionary areas, right? So, so the staples are really, you've either got consumer staples or consumer discretionary, right? Um, the people that, if you think about what I said about the companies where we have to pay extra, well, oil. So we've got, we've got Sandals and Woodside, so they can, they can benefit. Um, you know, we've got electricity, but do our companies in the electricity generation area really benefit? You can see that Origin came out with a profit warning today as we speak. Um, AGL wanted to split its business up. It hasn't been allowed to. It's it's obviously the directors think it's going to struggle as it is. Um, it's probably suffering from exactly the same sort of problems that Origin's suffering from in a broad sense as well. Um, so, you know, that's a tough one. Um, toll roads, you can say, yes, they get to put their, their prices up by 4% or inflation, whichever is greater. That's good. But then you have to start worrying about discount rates. And I haven't even answered your question on long duration mm. Um well, just before we get to long duration, I mean, with the oil price going up, people aren't going to be driving more when you're talking about toll roads. Uh, well, that's a very good point. They're not going to be driving more as a result, um, but they're going to be paying more when they go through. And and like I said, there's a non-discretionary aspect. So, you know, you still got to get to work. Maybe you'll switch to the train, maybe, but you've still got to get to work. And, and most people are still going to be, who are driving now, are still going to be driving along that toll road to get to work. Okay, so long duration stocks heavily discounted. Are they discounted enough? Well, okay. So let's let's start at at at, at the difference between the growthy companies and the low growth companies. So the low growth companies are typically value companies, and they're value companies because they're on lower near term valuation multiples, like price to earnings or price to book, than the growth companies. And the reason why they're on lower multiples than the growthy companies is because you don't have that future growth. You know, you want to, you know, in a growthy company, you're prepared to pay for that future growth that you're not going to get in a, in a, in a value company, right? Problem is, as interest rates start going up, you um, are discounting that future cash at a higher rate, Right. Okay. That's not the only thing that increases your discount rate, though. It's not only higher interest rates that increases your discount rate, it's higher risk that increases your discount rate. And we're getting higher risk at the same time as we're getting higher interest rates. Why are we getting higher risk? Because there's more uncertainty. It could be economic uncertainty, fear of an economic downturn. It could be the uncertainty associated with the, with the war. Um, Whatever it is, there's more uncertainty around now, more caution, if you like, by people, um, and so discount rates are higher. So, if you've got a company that's got uh, future earnings that are very high, you're not going to be paying. You're not going to want to pay as much for those future earnings today 
as you would have um, a year ago. And so those high growth companies to come to come back. Small cap companies also are more risky. They've got a, a, a smaller base of, of revenue. They that of themselves causes them to be um, uh, their valuations to come back more than the markets on average. Uh, likewise, low liquidity stocks. Again, you don't want to be caught in, in in a stock. Therefore, you're going to put a higher discount rate on that one as well. So, for all these reasons, we're going to get the the whole of the market comes back, but. Um, growth stocks, small cap stocks, low liquidity stocks um, come back, come back more, and so then you tie that in to what happens with these consumer discretionary companies. Um, some of these, a lot of these, actually, are small to medium cap as well. So that's a double whammy for for those companies. So where does quality growth come into it? Because a lot of people are talking about how that's that's the best of both worlds, I guess. Growth companies, companies with growth prospects that aren't heavily leveraged. Well, I, I suppose you can say the more things change, the more they stay the same. The thing that always works is a company that has structural growth, right? Um, and structural growth uh, in the current situation that is not um, uh, tied to um, the economy. Right, so if you've got a store rollout, if you've got a a new product that people just want to buy, um, and they're just going to buy it anyway, um, of course that's you know quite often healthcare has been described as that. If you've got an aging population, um, if you've got a product that addresses that, you know you can think about what happened when ResMed was rolling out its CPAP machines, for example. Um, when you've got a, a you know a rollout phase that's got um, many years ahead of it, um, you've got a strong balance sheet, um, you've got high margins. The margins are only going to go up over time with scale. Um, you know you've got strong um, competitive moat around it, whether it's because of your intellectual property or um, other barriers to entry associated with regulation. Um, if you can find companies like that, the secular growth. Well, yes, it's another way of of, of describing it. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So Marsh uh, is goes long and short. Yes. Um, what's the split at the moment between the two? We're um, more, much more short than what we would usually be. Um, we're a we're a long bias manager, and um, on average, since we started the firm, we've been net invested in the market by. 80%. So typically 80, 80% in stocks, 20% in cash. And, and within that, um, within that split, we, we do some shorting as well. Um, and typically we're five to 10% short in the portfolio. But at the moment, we're 30% short in the portfolio. And our um, net investment, instead of being 80%, has been 40%. So we're about half invested as what we'd usually be. Um, we think that there are um, good opportunities to buy stocks developing. We're not there yet. Um, we had a recent experience with COVID where having the cash on hand made a huge difference. Um, when the stock prices get low enough, um, you buy them. You don't you don't buy them hoping they're going to go lower or waiting to see if they're going to go lower um, because the market can move so quickly when it does. Um, but you know we've we've got the cash now ahead of oh, a lot of cash, yeah, and also ahead of what we think is going to be a pretty poor results season. So, um, how, how much cash? Well, net sixty percent. So, so you know, uh, net invested forty percent. 
that means net cash, 60%. So you know, one of the things that's um, driving our valuation of stocks at the moment is we think there are going to be quite big earnings downgrades coming as a result of um, the August uh, full year um, results season that we'll do. So think about um, the financial year in Australia is, is 12 months to 30 June. Uh, the companies uh, prepare their accounts and then they report in August. When they report in August, they talk about how they went for the last six months of the year. Um, and then they also talk about what their outlook is and they give some guidance, right? Well, we think they're going pretty well at the moment. So the, the, the current financial year they're in, that, they're, that they'll report on in August, I think things will be generally okay. What is probably not going to be okay for a significant portion of the market is their outlook statement looking out to the following year. And, and we think that given what's the, the, the reduction in consumer sentiment we're seeing at the moment, um, given the um, increase in costs that are being passed on through petrol and electricity and food to the consumers at the moment, we think that the um, the boards of, of, of many of these companies are not going to have the confidence to have a strong outlook statement and are going to be erring on the side of pessimism when they come out with their outlook statements. Okay. So the market doesn't like those outlook statements. Prices for these stocks go down. Is it time to go shopping then? Yes, it is. But to complicate a little bit more, um, you know, the market might fall before we get to that point, right? So the market likes to anticipate things. So to the extent that the market anticipates there's going to be earnings downgrades in August, we might actually see weakness in the market before then. And so that's why it's important to have a view about what the right price is for any stock, because, you know, it may well be that the right price occurs before, you know, the reporting season. And you you don't want to, you don't want to just be waiting, 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 and then, you know, surprised that prices are so much higher when you get to reporting season, when you actually had your chance prior to that. So you've got your price targets ready to go? We've got our price targets, yeah. Okay. Okay. Monash put a lot of emphasis on being benchmark unaware. Mm. Uh, What does that actually mean? And are Australian funds in general, in your view, uh, too attached at the hip to the benchmarks? And if you're chasing a benchmark, you know, plus plus alpha, does that mean that you're chasing parts of the market you shouldn't be? Well, really, you know, fund managers react to what their clients want. And 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 a very large part of the market in Australia is institutional clients or financially advised clients who are trying to do a bit better than the stock market. And so they want their fund manager to give them a, a, a fund that is going to do a bit better in the stock market and not take up too much risk because they don't want to get blown up by something the fund manager does that's stupid. Um, and, you know, that, that leads to very um, uh, tight controls about what a fund manager is allowed to do in terms of the investments they're allowed to make that differs from what a stock's benchmark weight or sector weight is in the market. And so um, it's tough. It's tough, you know, most of you, so you're going to get a, as an investor, you're going to invest in a, in a, in a fund and, you know, it, maybe it's got great fund managers and you're going to do okay, but you'll just do a little bit better than the, than the market. You'll go up and down with the market. It, it does seem like a strange strategy to, on the one hand, 
chase a benchmark because in a lot of ways that's what they're doing, but then chase it and at the same time try and do it a little bit better, you know, and it's 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 almost it's a strange balance that they're trying to achieve well, look, instead just, of just going for the absolute return that you guys have. Um, yeah. I, I do think it's natural human behaviour though, um, you know, that, that people, you know, react to bad news worse than, than, than they enjoy good news. And so that's led the industry to go down this track over time. Um, I used to do that uh, for a couple of different very large firms and, and, and I was head of Australian equities in, in, um, at them. And um, having done that for over 20 years, I wanted to start Monash Investors, which, as you said, is going from more of an absolute payoff uh, than a relative payoff. And now that doesn't mean we're only going to have positive returns all the time. What it means is when we um, invest in stocks, we're investing stocks every time to make money in the stock we're investing in, not because it's going to go a bit better than its competitors. Um, likewise, um, you know, we're, we're not going to invest in whole sectors because we can't see the payoff in those sectors. Um, we're going to look and spend our analytical resources in the places where we think we can get the best payoff. And so right now, for example, um, there's a lot of payoff in being short consumer discretion. We've spent a lot of time working on that to identify where the opportunities are. For example, spent a lot of time uh, in the oil um, uh, providers trying to work out where the best place is there and if we're right about our view about what's going on in the oil market. Um, and so we end up having a portfolio that is got it looks very different to the market um, and its characteristics change over time uh, in a way that you just don't get if you're investing in a portfolio that's going to um, try and um, you know conform its risk profile to that of the market. So what do your weights look like now compared to the market for for the long for your long positions? Okay, so um, in terms of the characteristics of the portfolio, we've gone from having 80% invested to 40% invested, right? So there's, that's one way of looking at it. In terms of our exposure to small cap, on a net basis, we've gone from having something like 80% in small to mid cap to having 20% in small to mid, mid cap. Um, in terms of sector exposures, we've gone from being, say, long 15 to 20% consumer discretionary to being short. 10 to 15% consumer discretionary. Um, we've gone from having zero exposure uh, to resources uh, to having 20% exposure to resources. So, so that's how we think about the changes. It's, it's, it's very, um, I've been talking in terms of sectors, but it's all very stock specific. Um, we don't invest in any stock unless we can get the payoff we're looking for. And when we invest in a stock to buy it, we're looking for an upside of at least 60% to the price that we're buying it at. And we invest in a stock to go short, we're looking at at least a 30% downside to the price that we sell it short. So those are some pretty big swings. Can you give us some examples of some of those stocks in consumer discretionary that you got rid of and, and conversely, um, some of the stocks in resources that you picked up? Okay, so um, well, I preface that with saying that um, the size of the investments that we put into the shorts are smaller than the size that we put into the longs, and we do that because the payoffs are smaller. If you think about a short, the short can only go down by one hundred percent, where the longs can go up multiples uh, potentially if it's if it's fantastic. Um, when it comes to the shorts, I, like I said, you, you've got to look for those companies that um, 
are probably in the in the position where people have already spent a lot of money in the products that they're selling. So we mentioned JB Hi-Fi, for example, because uh, there's been a pull forward in computer spend. There's been a pull forward in um, you know white goods spend, um, general technology spend as well. Um, so that's one area. Another area, if you think about in the home, um, coffee machines. Coffee machines have actually boomed uh, globally because of lockdowns and the money spent in the home because people are spending. And so the obvious candidate there, of course, is Breville, for example. Um, another area that's of interest is um, in the auto side and, and auto has been thought of as a place that is actually um, got very strong prospects ahead of it because there are waiting lists for new cars, for example. But what we saw in the United States recently was while that might be true, um, at the bottom end of the market for used cars, um, there's been a surprising fall away in demand. And perhaps that's a precursor uh, because in any uh, consumer downturn, it does tend to start um, at the lower socioeconomic levels uh, and then it reaches up to some extent. Um, so again, you know, there are, there are three main exposures in Australia when it comes to um, autos. Uh, they're all slightly different. You've got the car dealerships, for example, like Eggers. Um, you've got ARB, which is selling um, uh, things for four-wheel drives, right? And you've got... Um, uh, Babcock, so that that sells the um, uh, retails and also to the trade for parts for for cars. Okay, Simon. We always finish with a couple of favourite questions. We always ask our podcast guests. Question one: What book has been most influential uh, to your investment philosophy? I'm going to actually. I was thinking about this the other day, and it wasn't actually a book; it was a pamphlet, and. Pamphlet. It was a pamphlet, one. and it was a pamphlet that was put out by the ANZ Bank, probably um, in the late seventies. I know this sounds really strange, but it was, I was, it was. It's what actually got me first interested in the share market. And this pamphlet was basically talking about investing in the share market and getting a compound return over time. And I just, you know, I reflect back on that, and I think. You know, again, it's just, it's always been like, it's nothing really changes. I'm reaching back like 50 years and, and it just hasn't changed. So, I mean, look, I've read many, many books on investing, um, books about uh, Warren Buffett, <clears throat> um, books about, um, you know, uh, where are the customers yachts, which is about what happened in the, in the 1920s um, in the stock market. And things have changed over time. Um, but uh, what, is, what is the same is, um, you know, everybody is trying to understand what's going on. And if you can understand a little bit better what's going on and just be a little bit head of uh, the average understanding of what's going on, and as long as you've got a, a process that allows you to um, back your judgment in that regard, and if you're right, you, you make money in the share market. Have you found yourself reading different books as your own investment styles change? Um no, it's been more my investment experience over time. Um, you know, I started off um, at a value manager, and I was I was in value for the first um, oh, probably ten years of my career, and then I was in a growth manager for the next um, ten years or so of my career, and then I went back to a value manager for another five years after that, and that led up to starting Monash Investors after that twenty five years, and we've brought together both the value and the growth, and it's it's been my experience, you know, um, investing to those different styles. Um, investing in large cap and small cap, 
and um, and now doing shorts as well as going long, um, I think that's sort of developed my my understanding of the market over time. Question two, could you tell us about either your biggest gain or biggest loss and what did you learn from it? Biggest gain or biggest loss? We've had some cracking gains over time and the gains are getting onto companies that are at an early-ish stage of their development and they just um, execute and they've got many years of runway to execute. And, and like we see this time and time again in the market um, over the decades, often happens with store rollout. Um, so one of the ones we've done so well out of in, in, in Monash Investors has been Lavissa, um, where we got in um, very early. Um, I think it had 150 stores at that stage. It's now got 550 stores. Um, and, you know, that's that's been something that's 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 gone up ten times since we've owned it. Yes, it's come back now, um, but you know the experience we had in that stock has just been exceptional. Um, same thing with um, what is now called email payments. Used to be e merchants. The trick with all these companies is selling when you get to your target price. Um, so I take it, I take it you you don't hold these stocks anymore. We don't hold email payments at the moment, but we do have some holding in Lavissa. Lavissa's still got a really long runway of store rollout. And so this is actually a, a stock that we're owning, even though consumer discretionary is on the nose, because the we, we think it's still a bargain, even at the current price. And yes, it might go down a bit, but we're not going to try and game the price on, on Lavissa when we our valuation of the company is so high compared to the, to the current price. Um, stocks that haven't worked out... Um, Look, the thing is, we um, we've had lots of stocks that haven't worked out um, because you know, as a, as an investor, we're trying to work out what's going to happen over the next three, five, seven years in a stock, and uh, bring that back to a price that we're prepared to pay for the stock today. But of course, our understanding can be wrong, and it can change over time. Um, so what we've done is we've worked out early warning triggers. Um, and so if we find that a stock's not doing what we expect, um, even if it's it's for reasons that we think have got nothing to do with our investment thesis, so maybe it's it's um, it's just missed a, a short-term earnings target, or maybe there's been a spike in the short interest, we'll sell some of that stock and try and reduce the number of stocks that we we go down with in that way. And that's worked actually quite well last year. We had about half a dozen stocks we exited for those reasons. As an absolute returns fund, you don't follow a benchmark at all. Do you put um, self-imposed caps on the amount of stock, any one stock you'll hold? Very much so. So the way we try and control for risk is we say, look, um, you know, if we have roughly equal weights in uh, – the stocks that we like that have got similar levels of liquidity and similar upside and so forth. If we have roughly equal weights in those stocks, then um, if we can be right eight times out of 10, the ones that we get right will offset the ones that we get wrong and we'll, we'll still come out with a very good return. So that's our, that's our philosophy. We generally have weights of between five and 7% in the stocks that we like. We've got quite concentrated portfolios. 
Um, not all our stocks are at 5 and 7%. There are some that have got lower liquidity or they're on their way out of the portfolio um, because they're approaching their price target or they're on their way in the portfolio as we're building up positions. So we'll typically have about 20 positions in the portfolio. And last question, if you could only invest in one company for the next five years, what would it be? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think that, um, again, you know, a stock where you've got more confidence in the growth in earnings over time, and you've got strong reasons to, um, you know, the metrics you can have confidence in. So it might be sales per store. You can be working out how many stores they're going to have. Um, those classes are, are actually probably some of the best you can get. I think in in, in coming back to Lavisa. Um, we can see that there's still a very long store rollout runway in the United States and in Europe. Um, and so on that basis, you know, currently 550 stores, we could easily see 2,000 stores, you know, over the next seven to eight years. The market prices ahead as the market realises it's going to get there. The market doesn't think it's going to do that many at the moment. Um, the earnings numbers will go up and, and the price will eventually follow. So um, I would nominate LaVissa for a stock for held in the next five years, particularly where the entry point is today. So we've just spent half an hour talking about non-discretionary <laughs> stocks being on the nose. What is going on? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, Simon, you've been very generous with your time. Thanks for coming on Rules of Investing. Thanks, David. See you another time. Well, that's it for today's episode. Lots of headwinds for investors, but they can be navigated with effective asset allocation. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And don't forget to sign up to livewiremarkets.com for free access to some of the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. See you next week.